0: Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of Schmear's Day, November 22nd, 2021. Happy Thanksgiving to everyone in the US and happy new year to our Canadian friends. On the show today, news, listener questions, and in our main segment, Jim Hill tells us about the most controversial ride opening in Walt Disney World history. Let's get started by bringing in the man who says that while well, some apples taste good and some apples taste bad. Cheetos taste the same every time. It's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? And you know, Len, they stay crunchy even in milk. <laughs> <laughs> didn't expect you to go with that, too. <laughs>
1: okay. You know, but the downside is that when you start your morning with a big bowl of Cheetos and some 2% milk, you end up with breath that rivals that that chili dog smell that the guests used to experience <laughs> at Stitch's Great Escape, which, by the way, we'll be discussing on the second half of today's show. The
0: second half of today's show.
1: What a, what a way to work that in, Jim. That's fantastic. There we go. And, and speaking of things I need to work in, got two quick corrections. We had loyal listener Sean, reach out and point out that on our last show, we talked about how it was was Bob Chapek, as part of an earnings call, had made some comment about they were lowering the size of portions of Disney theme parks and how that would impact people's waistlines. And we want to clarify here, as Sean pointed out, it wasn't Bob Chapek that actually said that, it was Disney CFO Christine McCarthy. So Ah, I apologize for that misstatement. Likewise, at the live event this past week, Kevin T came up to me and wanted to point out that we had talked about... The monorail beams on a recent show, and where they had been built, and I had mentioned that they had come from Portland, Oregon, and as it turns out, no, they were actually produced around Seattle in
0: uh, the Tacoma area. In fact, at the University of Puget Sound. All right. Well, thanks for doing those corrections, and mm-hmm. thanks for everybody for uh, for sending this in. Cool. Archim, let's do a quick shout out to subscribers over at DisneyDish.bandcamp.com. Thanks to new subscribers Mandy Moore, Chris P. Reed and Dr. Sean Wilkes, and longtime subscribers Carson Jadel, Keith Bretzis, and Emmy Ruth at Brown University. Jim, these are the intrepid explorers who, on an early jungle cruise voyage, left the boat to grab some supplies and got chased by a crazed poodle who'd gotten loose backstage. They took shelter in the only place they could find, which was up a tree where they hung on for dear life until Walt himself rescued them, thus inspiring the famous rhinoceros scene that's on the ride to this very day. True story. Walt made some embellishments, but you know. You do know that Walt had a poodle, right? Uh, I did know that, yes. Yes, okay. Weaving, weaving this all together, Jim, all together. They're true stories. They I are! I they Walt. are! I just, <laughs> just love that that was the dog. <laughs> all right, Jim, let's do the news. Folks, the Disney Dish News is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted travel partner of the Disney Dish Podcast. For a worry-free travel experience every time, online at storybookdestinations.com. All right, Jim, big news. Uh, You and I are going to announce that we're doing our first ever Disney dish cruise in 2022. We're calling it the Disney dish on the Disney wish. Mm-hmm. The dates are September 23rd to the 26th, 2022. That's a Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday. So if you play your cards right, you only need one, maybe two days of vacation. It's on the wish out of Port Canaveral, Disney's newest ship. And we're all excited to see that. We also made it three nights, so it's as, as affordable as possible. In fact, Jim, I think this is the least expensive wish cruise in September and pretty close to the cheapest wish cruise in the fall. Two people right now is around $2,600 all in, and that's with a veranda. Inside cabins and ocean view cabins are slightly less expensive. We're going to have tons of chances to meet up while on board. We're planning some exciting events so we can all get to another ship, and we'll record a special live show while on board. Uh, the stops for this one are Nessa and Castaway Key. Last thing to mention, the Wish is 90% booked for its inaugural sailings, so no pressure or anything. But if you want to get on this for 2022, maybe make a deposit sooner rather than later, you can visit storybookdestinations.com slash Disney Dish to get in on all the fun. Very cool. So now into the news. Mm. Our friends at www.magic.com note that Crash Landings are now a part of the show at Kite Tales. Over at Animal Kingdom, Jim, this is one of those things where you embrace (laughs) the things that are going wrong and call it part of the show. It's a feature, not a bug. Wow, really? Yes.
1: Okay. How long do we anticipate these kites lasting if they end every show going either face down in the water or face down in the stands?
0: I'm guessing that none of that is covered under the manufacturer's warranty. So the phrase spare Baloo might come into into play. behind the scenes (laughs) at animal king blue one blue two yeah i don't even want all right anyway going moving on all right more dates are sold out for mickey's very merriest party this is the after hours event Mm -hmm. at the magic kingdom so going back a few days the november 12th 16th 18th 19th and 21st dates were sold out tomorrow's date the 23rd also sold out and december 21st twenty twenty one I think that's everybody celebrating the equinox on that one though there might be some sort of pagan ritual thing going on there you go actually went to this one you and I went to this one on last Sunday we did we did and it was kind
1: of intriguing to get the abbreviated version of the what's about a Christmas Christmas parade. but man, I needed that. I did not realize how much I needed that. Until I saw it, I mean, we only got six reindeer, we only got five marching wood, wooden soldiers, and but, but we also got our first African American Santa, who was who was delightful. Man, I needed that parade. And speaking of which, the Minnie's Firework Show that they do in the park, this debuted, I want to say, in two thousand nineteen, back when they used to drape the castle with the magical lights things. Remember how they'd bring the crane in and and drape the uh, LED lights down the side of the building? Right. They've redone the show because now there are no lights, so that they did a whole new set of projections for it that are great fun. And we got this intro from the late, great Nate about how they were actually testing new shells for the show on Saturday night after the park closed that then appeared in the show on Sunday. So, wow. That's quick. But yeah, re- really enjoyed it, but made for kind of an interesting moment when the, the park closed at eight and everyone was sort of standing in the street
0: waiting for enchantment to begin.
1: But overall, I thought it was a fun time.
0: I thought it was great. You know, my, my impression of those events ahead of time is always like, I don't think this is going to be worth the money. Mm-hmm. And then I get in there And I think it's completely worth the money. Mm -hmm. And it was the same thing for this Christmas event. Mm -hmm. I got in early and then Chrissy, who who was with us, reminded me that all of the snacks are free Mm -hmm. during the event. And normally in years past, those snacks would be something like a cookie and a hot chocolate. Mm -hmm. But I guess Disney's trying to help people rationalize the cost of these party ticket events because there's a ton of food that's available. Mm -hmm. Um, You can get bottles of soda. Uh, You can get popcorn, cotton candy, as many cookies as you want, and tons of other food. And so Chrissy and I were trying to figure out how much food you could take from the uh, event. So at one point, I walked up and asked one of the cast members for 24 cookies. Mm -hmm. And they gave me 24 cookies. And I said, okay, you know, I can give these 24 cookies out to Jim, the people that were with us. So that wasn't a big deal. But what if I had asked for like, Seventy-two cookies. Would you give me seventy-two cookies? And the cast member replied that if I had a backpack, and they asked me, and I asked them to fill it with cookies, they would do that. Oh! So next year, Jim, my idea is portable refrigerator that I can stock with Mickey bars.
1: Look for Len leaving the park, looking very much like Quasimodo with the refrigerator strapped to his back.
0: The other thing that I that I found interesting about the party was how serious Disney took the process of clearing people out of the park. So when the park closed at, was it eight? Yeah, yeah. I was in Fantasyland Mm -hmm. walking. Christian and I had watched the end of the fireworks, so the end of the enchantment fireworks, Mm -hmm. and we were behind the castle because we were trying to figure out vantage points. Mm -hmm. So we were behind Prince Charming, Regal Carousel. Mm-hmm. We were walking towards Haunted Mansion, and coming towards us mm-hmm. was a line of cast members, arm to arm, shoulder to shoulder, mm-hmm. who were asking everyone that they passed for their wristbands. Mm-hmm. And if you didn't have the wristband, you couldn't pass. And they were essentially, you know, using a wall of people to just sweep guests out of the park. It was a lot of effort, and they were serious about getting people out so that you couldn't get get on any of the other rides. In fact. We met them right at the entrance to Peter Pan, mm-hmm. and it was like 9.10, 9.20, mm-hmm. um, you know, right after Enchantment. And some day guests had tried to get on Peter Pan mm-hmm. and were denied boarding because they didn't have the wristbands on. So Disney was really serious about that. It's, it and I had watched Enchantment as well, and we're headed over
1: to Adventureland because we were going to do a group event on the Jingle Cruise. And yep. we encountered a cast member who would have been perfectly at home at the Brandenburg Gate, you know, Checkpoint Charlie. It's like, listen, <laughs> Sean Anderson. It's like, right here. I'm sorry. Oh, my God.
0: Got the wristband. Yeah. yeah. You may now proceed. But they were they were serious with that. They were. They were. Overall, though, a lot of fun. I thought the uh, projection show on the castle looked great. Mm-hmm. Um, I love the music. I love the atmosphere. The Stitch's, uh Christmas dance party thing was a little strange for me because I don't dance in public like that. But. Um, overall, yeah, and the and the wait times were very very low. They were, and just to circle back to the, the event
1: at Club Tinsel, it was. Can remember, it's a cold night, and the DJ and the cast members who were working there really had to get the crowd motivated yeah but they eventually did it in fact i think when you came back with the cookies you had just missed they must have been 20 or 30 people out on the floor dancing they, they finally oh, pers- really? persuaded people to get up and actually dance so it was like more credit to them for pulling that off
0: so yeah yeah the, uh for the for that show mm-hmm. for the uh for the stitches titsel thing mm-hmm. it's really the dj and stitch that make it all and then they brought a couple of dancers out they did to, they uh, did. to mingle among us that helped too yeah. it does it does it's a nice little uh, thing, and kids seem to love it.
1: Well, yeah, lots of little kids out on the floor, and eventually they got mom and dad to join them. And, and like I said, they eventually built this big crowd line dance thing that was really fun. To, to oh, Nancy, actually
0: got up and dance, which is post back
1: surgery. That's a thing. That's a
0: real thing. That is a thing. Wow, we how know. about that? So yeah, so I thought you know I thought it was uh, it was probably worth the cost. Again, I'm I'm always surprised when those things uh, do well, and there was like I said, no way to get on any of the rides. So mm-hmm. yeah, I really uh, I really enjoyed it. I had a lot of fun. Me too. All right, Jim, an article in this week's Forbes quotes Bob Chapek is saying Disney is aggressively pursuing opportunities in sports betting. Here's the quote. Gambling does not have the cachet now that it had, say, 10 or 20 years ago. And we have some concerns as a company about our ability to get in without having a brand withdrawal. But I can tell you that given all of the research that we've done recently, Mm -hmm. that's not the case. It actually strengthens the brand of ESPN when you have a betting component and it has no impact. On the Disney brand, so Jim, yes, uh, what does this mean for ESPN? A second piece dropped just yesterday.
1: Hollywood Reporter, a uh, headline: Disney shows its cards in pursuit of sports betting, and the line in particular I wanted to share out of this article. Then this is from Chris Kalensky, the chairman and CEO of the strategic advisory firm. Uh, Phoenicia, Sports and Entertainment, and he makes a point of saying it isn't Disney that's entering betting. ESPN is entering betting. Disney is trying to make a clear delineation to the effect of in much the same way that like there's a Marvel silo and there's a Pixar silo and there's a Lucasfilm silo. There's an ESPN silo. So it's like, no, it's not Disney that's getting into sports betting. It's ESPN. And that's kind of a, an interesting argument, Len. Don't you think? It is just like you know. Please ignore the man behind the curtain. Here at Disney, we don't do sports betting, but over there at Sport, you know, ESPN, if you want to put a few dollars down to the game, absolutely feel free. And and the other thing as part of this article that it, it makes a point of, of betting is that. All of the major sports leagues over the past 10 years have gotten on board with sports betting. I mean, this past August, the NFL announced Fox Bet. And so the NBA, the the Major League Baseball, NHL, they've all signed betting deals. So the point that Disney's trying to make, the whole there used to be a stigma to this sort of thing. With so many major players embracing sports betting, it, 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 in fact, what's interesting is the article in The Hollywood Reporter makes the argument that Disney may be getting into the game too late. Right. Yeah. The ship may have sailed. And, you know, the whole notion of this is a revenue stream that the company should embrace with the notion of it's only through ESPN. I think that may be too fine a point. The thing you mentioned at the very top of, of the segment, of the show, brand withdrawal, that's a very polite way of saying when something you love or it's a sports team or a university or that sort of thing that you associate with does something so heinous, you step back from your enthusiasm for that. You stop going to games or you stop going to alumni events or or that sort of thing. And so brand withdrawal is a concern for Disney because they don't want the stories out there about... Man spends child's college fund on Disney betting. Yeah, that would be awkward. So, between the Forbes piece and the Hollywood Reporter piece, if you're interested in, you know, what's going on here, be sure to check those out.
0: The thing I'm looking at is between, you know, getting ESPN gambling off the ground and just the relentless treadmill that Disney's on with um, trying to create content for Disney Plus. Mm-hmm where they're spending a billion dollars a year, but Netflix is spending $10 billion a year, mm-hmm. right? That's a lot of capital that Disney has to come up with.
1: It is, it is. And, and we have talked on previous shows about where might Disney get that money from. And, you know, sports betting is one way. And the, the thing we were sort of sussing out about the DVC also is another, you know, possibility. So.
0: Yeah. I think uh I think what we're looking here is potentially the sale of some asset somewhere or a spin-off of something mm-hmm. to uh to make all that money uh happen. Yeah, no, I agree. All right, Jim, one more uh news item of note. The uh reopening of All Star Music seems like it's being delayed. Mm-hmm. It looks like I am told that they're going to finish the refurb of the rooms before it reopens. So look for that to happen in twenty twenty two. I believe it was scheduled for later this year. For this live event, the
1: nice folks at Straybook Destination actually got Nancy and I In one of the wings that I, at the All-Star Music that I guess had been completed, the the rock and roll section. And very much reminiscent of how they redid the rooms at the Coronado. I mean, wood floors and nice clean fixtures. I mean, I could have done without the bedside table with the hard white marble top. That was just like a half an inch above the mattress. I must have wanged my elbow on that thing, <laughs> you know, four or five times during the trip. So I, I don't know if that worked, but the rest of room was really nice. Very
0: pleasant. The rest of it was great. Yeah. The rest of was great. Mm-hmm. All right. All right, Jim, we've got time for a couple of listener questions. Mm-hmm. Let's do these. Um, Eden writes in and says, I'm finally living my dream of working on rockets. I work at SpaceX as a launch engineer. The most recent remaster of Mission Space actually has some cool Easter eggs in it. The yet-to-be-launched James Webb telescope and the Orion capsule can be seen as you leave Earth and head towards Mars. I'm interested to see what Disney will do with Mission Space going forward as we continue to push towards Mars. It's also one of the few attractions with a definite future date attached to it. I believe it's 2036. All right, so we know, know, Jim, that we're going to get a refresh of Mission Space sometime in the next 15 years. Wow, okay. Also, we have an inordinate number of listeners who... Who we'll work on uh, Who we'll work on rocket ships? <laughs> if we need to escape the planet, though, there, Jim. Uh, well, if we get a few more questions wrong, we may have to pursue. The, <laughs> You're right. Pursue that <laughs> wasn't idea. Wasn't what I was thinking. I was thinking more of a Superman scenario, but both things work. Okay, there we go. All right, uh, Barbara writes in about the story we did earlier around. Kidney stones being resolved by writing on Big Thunder Mountain, Mm -hmm. and Barbara's an educator, and she says, I had a student do a speech about this paper, so I read it. They didn't actually send patients on the attractions. They had a 3D printed model of a kidney and bladder with actual kidney stones in it and sent that on the attraction multiple times. So no human subjects, although as someone who's had three kidney stone surgeries, I would sign up for the insurance that would allow me to ride Big Thunder Mountain 20 times. All right, Jim, my, my first question is, and this is what I want to know. Mm-hmm. How do you get a 3D printed model of a kidney and bladder through Disney security? <laughs> Question number one, right? Oh, okay. Now, if you remember your kidney shapes, it's like,
1: well, I never go anywhere without my very large ocarina. <laughs> yeah, like, <laughs> like,
0: or is the security guard just sitting there saying, you know, this isn't the, even the strangest thing I've seen today. Wow. Ever. Okay. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. All right. But good to know on that. Yep. Finally, uh, John asks, has touring plans calculated the ride's daily genie and lightning lane capacity? I heard a rumor it's 93%. Is the genie capacity the same as FastPass Plus or more or less? So uh, the question that John has is, what ratio of guests are being taken from the lightning lane rides versus the standby lane for uh, for given rides? In, in the old FastPass system, the default was around 80% from FastPass, mm-hmm. 20% from the standby line. So a ratio of four to one. But we know that when things got busy in the fast pass line mm-hmm. the cast members had very wide discretion to make sure that that line the fast pass line was as short as possible so in those cases you could take 19 or 20 people from the fast pass line for every one that you took from the standby line and that's a ratio of 95 percent mm-hmm. uh, so it's similar mm-hmm. and by the way Jim uh, the way I know this is during our Christmas party event hmm when I mentioned I was going on Peter Pan's flight, I actually walked by the cast member who was staffing the Lightning Lane, even though it was during the party, mm-hmm. and they had a, a little printed card with the different ratios to use, depending on how backed up wow. the uh, Lightning Lane line was. And it was exactly the same card that they used for FastPass. And the reason why I know this is mm-hmm. I asked the cast member this question, hey, that card that you're using for Lightning Lane, isn't that the same card that you used for Fast Pass?" And she said, yes, yes, it is. Oh. There you go. Problem solved. <laughs>
1: Holy cow. Okay. So we have a definitive answer. Wow. Yeah.
0: So John, same ratios yeah, as before. And it's really up to the cast member to make the determination about how many people to pull from each line. Uh-huh. Wow. Okay. Well, so we solved the problem. Jim, look at us. There we go. There we go. <laughs> All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, Jim tells us about one of the most infamous ride openings in Disney history. Jim, I was there for it, so it'll be a lot to talk about. We'll be right back.
1: Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and NA, member FDIC. All
0: right, Jim, everyone's favorite attraction, Stitch's Great Escape. You call this the most infamous ride opening, or one, sorry, one of the most infamous ride openings in Disney history. I would love to hear the background for this. We're going to start with... A piece of Orlando area history, though
1: the definition of the word Kissimmee actually means long water. The Hororo, the indigenous people who lived in and around Walt Disney World, uh, where it was eventually built, there were an estimated 350,000 of these folks living in the area when the Spanish first arrived in Florida back in 1513.
0: Are you going to tell us... That Stitch's Great Escape was built on an Indian burial ground. Damn it! You beat me to the joke. Is that where you're going? That's where I'm going. All right. Oh God. Go ahead. Because that's the the only
1: possible explanation. Think about it. There isn't an attraction that has been in this spot that has connected with the public. We go all the way back to Flight to the Moon. Okay, opens at Walt Disney World on December twenty fourth, nineteen seventy one. Some twelve weeks after the park itself opens, never connects with the public. such poor business that April of 75, just three years and change into its run in Tomorrowland. It's shuttered and retooled, reopens June 7th of the same year as Mission to Mars. Mission to Mars has a far longer run, uh, runs for 18 years and four months. But again, by no stretch of the imagination is this Tomorrowland attraction popular, which genuinely frustrates the Imagineers. I mean, they have this two theater complex that is basically right off of the hub and each of the theaters can hold 162 people at a time. So if if the mission to Mars, flight to the moon complex is operating at peak efficiency, it was it three shows an hour, Len, or four shows an hour. I think it was four, depending on how fast you can get people out. Okay, so you you bumping people out the door that way. Theoretical capacity per hour is 1,296 guests.
0: Which all right, that's not that's not bad. Not bad. I mean, it's not Space Mountain. Right? Space Mountain supposedly eight, no. 18- but it's I mean. Yeah, spacebound's is 1800. Big Thunder's like 1500 though, so it's close. But early 1990s, across the street,
1: you had Timekeeper from time to time set up in the old Circle Vision Theater. and oh, And so yeah. if we're going to do a funny show over there on that side of the street, then to balance that out other side of the street, we should do something intense, something scary. And and Len, you and I have talked about the troubled history of extraterrestrial alien encounter. This thing soft opened December 16th, 1994, and was so poorly received that in less than a month, January 12th of, of 95, it closes suddenly for retooling.
0: (laughs) Retooling being, we're going to completely rewrite this script as much as we can
1: one of the things they immediately zeroed in on was the fact that the pre-show, which featured an AA figure—I want to make sure—a Tom, which would stood for Technobotic Oratorical Mechanism, was voiced by Phil Hartman. Really funny pre-show featuring Skippy, yeah. but the argument was it was too light, it was too comical for the intense show that immediately followed. So
0: right, and this is the uh, this is the Chinese grandmother thing that uh, that our friend Jim Schulen uh, has talked to us about that you. When you've got an intense attraction, you need to tell the people who don't understand what they're looking at, mm-hmm. what it is they're getting themselves into. Absolutely. So one way for Disney to do this is for outdoor, is to show outdoor roller coasters, mm-hmm. you know, part of the track uh, or the ride vehicle to show you what you're getting into. But for indoor rides, mm-hmm. I guess the, the premise is that the pre-show should should give you an idea of what you're about to experience. And in this case, it was the exact opposite. Well, yeah. Comedic, yeah. lighthearted pre-show
1: followed by filling your adult diaper you know the show that that (laughs) followed so what they did is they they redid the pre-show to be far more foreboding they they added a a, a much more sinister cyborg called sir this one stood for simulated intelligent robotics and they got tim curry to do the voice so it's just sort of like oh this is going to be scary uh revamped version of this attraction opens in june 20th 1995 never connects with Walt Disney World visitors. Yeah. Actually, cutting-edge attraction in its own way makes use of 3D sound. Yep. But there were a lot of people who argued this feels out of place in the Magic Kingdom, which was, for the way a lot of people think about it, the kingdom is the most family-friendly of the four Walt Disney World theme parks. A number of people suggested that if Extraterrestrial Alien Encounter had been built at Disney MGM, now Disney Hollywood Studios, instead of the kingdom it would still be up and running today. I mean, if you you can uh, picture it, in yeah. that park, in place of say Lightning Queen's Racing Academy, so it's paired with Twilight Zone and Rock and Roller Coaster, starring Aerosmith. You have these trio of thrilling experiences that are positioned close together to make, to make things easy for adrenaline junkies.
0: That's a great argument that it wasn't it wasn't the wrong ride; it <laughs> was the wrong park.
1: But anyway, revamped version of Alien Encounter stumbles coming out of the gate, but then again, so did Time to Time, but for entirely different reasons. Timekeeper. Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, you and I have talked. About how because the entrance of that attraction is in the middle of the street, you know, a lot of people just walked right by. Walk
0: right by it. Yeah. Yep. The uh, the thing is, if you're if you're coming in from the central hub or from the Tomorrowland Terrace, mm-hmm. you are upon the entrance to Timekeeper or Monsters Laugh Floor mm-hmm. before you even really get a sense of what's in the land. Oh yeah. It's almost like you. you it's too close mm-hmm. to the border for people to recognize that they're in the land and there's something they should be looking out for. Same thing with the extraterrestrial.
1: You actually walk by it. And if you're coming from the hub, you you almost have to do a a fish hook to sort of turn around and, Oh, there's the entrance. So anyway, with extraterrestrial alien encounter and from time to time, the timekeeper, What the Magic Kingdom was working with was two WDI-created IPs that hadn't connected with guests, but yet just down the block, we've got Buzz Lightyear Space Ranger Spin, which has been up and running in Tomorrowland, since it's November of 98, and it always has a line, and that's largely because, you know, Walt Disney World visitors
0: know Buzz from the Toy Story movies. Plus, it's an interactive ride. It was novel at the time. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's yeah, there's a lot of reasons why buses pop. No, 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 absolutely. But but here are the Imagineers getting
1: ready to make another run at fixing the Magic Kingdom's Sparland problem. And the managers of that park, as they're asking for replacements for extraterrestrial Alien Encounter, and from time to time, they're now asking that these shows be built around animated characters that guests are sure to know. This is why Timekeeper, after shifting to just seasonal operation in the early 2000s, which means that, you know, the Circle Vision show was only open to guests who were visiting the kingdom on the busiest times of year. It closes February 2006 after 11 years of operation. And eight months later, Circle Vision Theater opens as the home of a new interactive attraction, Monsters, Inc. Laugh Floor. They play tested for, I want to say, like three months before it formally opens in January of 2007 and of course it, it's based on the hit Monsters Inc. film which opened at theaters November 2001 and then six months after Monsters Inc. the film debuts Walt Disney Animation Studios has a hit of its own which is Lilo and Stitch that opens in theaters in June of 2002 Becomes a box office smash over that summer, sells 145 million worth of tickets in North America, an additional 127 million overseas, makes a quarter of a billion, over a quarter of a billion dollars worldwide. And uh, Lilo and Stitch goes on to spawn a home premiere sequel, it comes out in August of 2003. There's a spin-off television series, Lilo and Stitch the Series, which debuts on ABC Kids on September 20th, 2003. And then the same series starts running on the Disney Channel in October of that same year. Okay. And since six, experiment 626 flew a spaceship in Lilo and Stitch, it seemed like the perfect spot to build an attraction around Stitch would be Tomorrowland. Better yet, because the Galactic Federation views this illegal genetic experiment as a threat to the entire cosmos. Well, what ba- better place to try and hold this wily blue beast than the exact same facility that had previously held the monster that had starred an Alien Encounter? Only this time, this this Tomorrowland attraction would deliberately be funny. And this was made clear, once again, we're back at the pre-show, that the, the Imagineers are writing for what will eventually be called Stitch's Great Escape, which now features an AA figure called Sarge 90210, who is voiced, <laughs> by the way, one of, by one of my favorite comic actors, Richard Kind. Uh, you, a lot of folks know him as the, the very talented gentleman who voiced Bing Bong in Pixar's Inside Out. But 90210 is in charge of training recruits, a.k.a. the Disney World guests, to work at this Galactic Federation Prisoner Transport Center. So okay. anyway... It's basically the the same physical setup of the previous show, but it's lighter in tone. It's literally lighter inside. They elu- eliminate all of the sinister lighting that had previously. Lighting, yeah. uh, lights are left on during the show far longer than the previous version. Features a great AA figure of Stitch. It's the very first use in park of
0: the Kuka Arms technology. Oh, yeah. This is um, Kuka Arms Power Forbidden Journey mm-hmm. over at Universal, the Harry Potter thing. Okay. Also, it was in the Epcot. Some of all fears some of all f- some of all thrills yep yeah, so there we go yeah but yeah. yeah these were the laser
1: cannons that were supposedly trained on Stitch Walt Disney Warden announces on September 21st 2003 which is one day after Lilo and Stitch debuts on ABC Kids that the extraterrestrial alien encounter will be closing in just 3 weeks time to be replaced by a brand new attraction based around the character seen in Disney's Lilo and Stitch so uh alien encounter frightens its its last tourists on on October 12th 2003 The home of the old home of Flight to the Moon and Mission to Mars is then readied for its new tenants. And Disney's PR team then begins to wonder, what's the very best way to signal to the world that Stitch has arrived at the Magic Kingdom? And since Experiment 626 is supposed to be, well, naughty, the thinking among Disney's PR team is that Stitch should have done something naughty as soon as he arrived in the theme park. So Len, mm. we're about to hand this story off to you because you were there on <laughs> it was the morning of, of November 16th, 2004. So uh, can you describe, well, first of all, what you saw when you arrived at the kingdom? What, what was parked out front of this train station?
0: There was uh sort of a couple of things. One, um, there was a giant stitch, an inflatable stitch that was out uh, out front. And, you know, that was uh, I don't think they, that the inflatable stitch mentioned uh, anything about the uh, the ride, mm-hmm. but it was a preview of things to come mm-hmm. right. When you walked down Main Street, USA, there were um, cast members running around asking if you had seen experiment sixty six mm-hmm. uh, that he had landed, which, If you didn't know what was going on and you didn't immediately go to Tomorrowland, Mm -hmm. it seemed weird. Mm -hmm.
1: No, I get Uh, that. And I was with
0: a few friends, by the way, this this entire week. Okay. I was spending a bunch of days in the Magic Kingdom. Mm -hmm. So I'd actually actually been there for previews before this officially opened Ah, as well, which we'll talk about. Okay. The big thing was the castle had been covered in toilet paper, (laughs) which is what Stitch was supposedly uh, uh, doing. And then there was... um, was there a sign or something? Oh, on there too well,
1: about? It, it was a giant piece of plastic that had been stuck on the side of the building. The inference was that Stitch had graffitied. Cinderella Castle. That there was a a big supposedly spray painted thing that said "Stitch is King," and likewise, weren't there like recorded messages being played over Disney's PA system? You know, from oh,
0: I believe it. Yeah, I don't uh, I don't remember these, but the, apparently they, they were they were there, and it was I guess is it was it giving backstory.
1: Well, just basically it was it was Agent Coral Bubbles over the Magic of the PA system. There's like warning. Guess I was like Stitch is on the loose. Be aware. You know that the, the Experiment Six Two Six is not to be trusted
0: so did you hang out and actually catch the stage show opening ceremony or i did not uh, i did not see the stage show okay. um, i do want to say though that i we did the preview of the a soft open mm-hmm. of the the ride a couple days before it officially opened mm-hmm. and in these days back in the uh in the more innocent time of 2004 mm-hmm. a preview of a ride was not the Analytics-based thing that it is now for the Disney uh, Disney Parks, mm-hmm. where they've got uh, you know people with clipboards doing surveys mm-hmm. afterwards, and everything is very stage managed. Right, this was like, hey, we're going to open this a few days early. We're going to put a couple of cast members out to ask people what they thought of it. Mm-hmm. So I go through the ride with uh, my friend Mike Scopa, Mike. And my friend Mike oh. Mike Newell, yep. mm-hmm. and we you know we remember extraterrestrial alien encounter. Mm-hmm. We knew that Stitch was going to be on the ride. We and we knew what the problems were with extraterrestrial alien encounter, right? That it was basically scaring the pants off of small children. Mm-hmm. So we we had thought that, well, this is gonna be, you know, different. They've used the space. Mm-hmm. It's gonna be basically the same story, but much lighter in tone. And we got on the ride and we realized once we were in the seats mm-hmm. that there were aspects of the original extraterrestrial alien encounter ride that were problematic for parents. Mm-hmm. That had not been fixed during the redo to stitch. And chief among these is the fact that Jimmy, you remember the seat harnesses, oh yeah, that came down over you mm-hmm. um, as you were seated, right? and in in the there was so there were um, shoulder harnesses mm-hmm. that descended um around your shoulders, and uh, it placed little speakers behind your head. And this is how the binaural sound there we go thing was working, mm-hmm. right? That's how they did the the sound effects, mm-hmm. right. The problem with this, though, is when you put the speakers in place that way, mm-hmm. if your child gets frightened, mm-hmm. you can't get up to comfort the child because yeah. you're locked in by the seat restraints, mm-hmm. nor can your child come to you. Mm-hmm. And so the um, the as, as the show progressed, they retained some of the aspects of the entire theater going dark, although it was briefer and there was still some, some moderate lighting, but still it got dark pretty quick. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there were still a couple of elements of, you know, stitch escaping mm-hmm. and the crowd around that there, the, the, the people who were sensibly part of the uh, part of the show, mm-hmm. um, freaking out mm-hmm. over the fact that stitches escaped and that still scared many children. Mm-hmm. So we, um, well, while we were watching the show, a number of parents—I forget it whether it was two or three groups—actually managed to wriggle out of the restraints, pull their children away from the seats, their crying children, I might add, and leave <laughs> in the middle of the show. So when we when we got out, mm-hmm. so it was me, Mike, and Mike. We got out, and there was a you know, there was a cast member there who was super perky, mm-hmm. and uh, I guess had not seen the parents exit, <laughs> and so they asked us, "So what do you think of the show? It was great, right?" Like. That's one word to describe it. Great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's one. I think we looked at each other and we all at the same time said the exact same words. Mm-hmm. And that was, what was that? Like, like what, were they, what were they going for here mm-hmm. that was different than, you know, extraterrestrial alien encounter? Because the end result was the same, right? Mm-hmm. The end result during our preview was that kids still freaked out mm-hmm. over the show. So why go through the effort of rebranding it if you're going to get the same result? That was, our, uh, that was our big thing. And by the way, um, that was stuff that we had heard mm-hmm. for years after Stitch's Great Escape opened. And, and, and let me say that Disney knew this. And the mm-hmm. reason why Disney knew this, Jim, there's one piece of evidence that is indisputable mm-hmm. that tells you that Disney recognized that this could sm- scare small children. Mm-hmm. And that's at that this ride, Stitch's Great Escape, which Jim confirmed for me, does not move. The theater is grounded on the earth and is as stable as anything, right? Absolutely. Okay. That had, I believe it was a 38 inch height requirement, Mm -hmm. even though the ride didn't move. And what Disney was doing there was using the height requirement as a proxy for age, making sure that young children who would be terrified by this ride would not go on. I did not know that. Holy cow. Yes. It was the only non-moving ride that I can remember that had a Height requirement on it. Holy cow! Yeah, oh, and again, they're using that as a proxy for age. Absolutely great insight, great, great capture there. But anyway,
1: it, it, as you mentioned, even with this problematic launch, which again I, I blame on the Indian burial gun, <laughs> it runs for f- 14 years and two months. I mean, not as
0: long as the 18 years that mission to Mars ran in that location. It, it ran, Jim. But let me ask you this question: You know, if a tree falls in the forest and no one hears it, was you know did it did it really happen? If uh, if a ride runs for fourteen years but no one goes on it, does mm-hmm. it really run? Let's also talk about how this attraction divided Disney
1: fans. I mean, there were there were people who liked the show, but that but the weird part of it is there were people who never forgave Walt Disney World's PR team for what they did on the day that that Stitch's Great Escape. Oh, with the castle? Yeah. I mean, and and that's why, again, you know, the lead-in for this thing, most controversial, you know, theme park opening uh, or attraction opening of all time. Because there there were people who, you know, oh, my God, that's the castle. And you put toilet paper on it. You put graffiti on it. And it's like, that's so disrespectful to Walt and that sort of thing. On the other hand, that there were people who just flat-out hated Stitch's Great Escape for that moment. In the attraction, where Stitch supposedly
0: burps chili dog smell in your face? Yeah, I thought it was gratuitous. Yeah, yeah. I don't think Stitch is a great character. Mm. Remember when there was um, there was a concerted effort around this time mm-hmm. to put Stitch in different places to see where he would stick. Yep. So this was one. Mm-hmm. Wasn't there something in Adventureland as well?
1: I want to say
0: yes. I didn't. They also
1: it was a lot of talk about doing stuff with him over at the poly. He was and remains a popular character. In fact, you know, as we're talking, Disney is prepping a live-action Lilo and Stitch reboot that's going to shoot
0: in Hawaii. I just I just don't get the appeal of the character. I mean, he's he's like Donald Duck, mm-hmm. right? He occupies the same sort of space as Donald Duck, and I get that he's mischievous, mm-hmm. but I don't understand the motivation. Mm-hmm. For him doing that, like is he doing it just because he's a jerk? <laughs> I think you may be onto something there. You know, in fact, they used to
1: do a Stitch Plus, which depending on, on how you talk to it, would either be in nice mode or naughty mode, you know. But again, that this appealed to the certain segment of, of Disney. Anyway, by the mid-2010s, it's, it's Stitch's Great Escape is has, has shifted to seasonal operations. It formally yeah. closes January 6, 2018. There was talk of putting a Wreck It Ralph themed racing experience in that would have made use of VR and and moving platforms. But last I heard, um, WDI seems to have shifted that show concept over to Epcot's Play Pavilion, though I don't know if that's going to make phase one or phase two. Mm -hmm. And as of right now, there is no decision about what goes next into the old Flight to the Moon, Mission to Mars Theater. I'm told that any decision regarding. The showboat building has been postponed until after Tron life cycles open, which we're still hearing is 2023. Is that correct?
0: You know, it's possible 2022. Mm-hmm. Okay. I've heard that it's closer than we thought. Okay. So we'll see. All right. Well, a- I- I'm expecting, I'm still, I'm holding out hope for 2022.
1: All right. Well, anyway, to close here, I, I hope it's sometime in the future, somebody gets into this old Tomorrowland show building and burns some sage or performs some sort of <laughs> cleansing ritual. Because uh, seriously, there is just no way when you have four separate attractions underperform, not connect with the public. There's something wrong there. You yeah. know, I mean, whether it's feng shui, I, I don't know, <laughs> an exorcism—that's it. No. Exactly, somebody's got to get in there and do something.
0: I, uh, you know, it. this is—I I think what what Disney should be doing late at night, like after the park closes. Mm-hmm. Just bringing in the uh, the religious leaders of various uh, sects mm-hmm. and just like, you know, hey, we have a problem here. Could you do whatever cleansing thing you guys normally do <laughs> in situations <laughs> like this? Let me know if you need some holy water, right? Ghostbusters Afterlife opens this weekend. Just get a proton pack, all right? Just
1: wait, you know. And, you know, <laughs> you know.
0: I, I start off with the, with the least intrusive option, Jim, and I work my way up. There we go. Okay. If, you want, if, you want to, if you want to just solve the problem at once, yeah, that's one way to do it too. There we go. There we go. So. <laughs> but it's amazing how there's nothing in this part of uh, Tomorrowland, mm-hmm. and it's such a huge footprint behind the scenes. Oh,
1: absolutely. And, and again,
0: it's a two-minute walk, if that, off of the hub.
1: The fact that it's just sitting there empty, and it's been sitting there empty, uh,
0: three years plus. They just need the right idea. And I don't think they have the right set of characters for it yet. And to your point, anything that they can put in there that involves a character they probably need for the play pavilion mm. first. Mm-hmm. Mm. So they're in a pickle. Yeah. That they are. So. Okay, folks, that's going to do it for the Disney dish show today. Please head on over to disneydish.bandcamp.com Dot We'll find exclusive shows never before heard on iTunes including live shows Jim and I have just recorded in all four Walt Disney World theme parks. On next week's show, Jim gives us the history of Animal Kingdom's Jingle Jungle Parade. You can find more of Jim at jimhillmedia.com and more of me, Len, at torrentlands.com. We're produced fabulously by Aaron Adams, who'll be showing you how to make Tutu Adams' famous handmade gift baskets at the Coconut Frond Weaving Experience this Saturday, November 27th from 4.30 to 5.30 p.m at the shops at Wailea in beautiful downtown Wailea, Hawaii. While Aaron's doing that, please go into iTunes and Raider Show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We will see you on the next show.